Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Believe in a power greater than what you are going through when you don't know what to do. That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles, and typically from New York and the Big Apple, all my listeners, welcome. Out there in Radio Land, I'm Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver. Caregiver. I got something in my mouth here, and got marbles. At uh, We're at caregiverdave.com, and my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg, who is normally here, is a little under the weather, so it's just me today. Me and Stephanie, my guests. So we're coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on 25 global audio and video platforms, including things like iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Facebook Live, SoundCloud, Blog Talk Radio, about 20 more other platforms all around the world, global and video and uh, audio. And we're so proud to be voted number one podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and one of the top six best podcasts on Caring.com. As well, as if that wasn't enough, number three podcast out of thousands of caregiver podcasts on Feedspot. And we do have an exciting show planned for today. And I'm, I almost said, don't we, Adrian? Because <laughs> that's what I say. But she's not here. Stephanie Erickson, author of Plan for Aging Well. She was born and raised in California. She has a master's degree in social work, certified Alzheimer's disease treatment specialist, at CADTS, just in case you were wondering, and is licensed in both Quebec and California. And she founded Erickson Resource Group Clinical Practice, providing decision-making capacity evaluations for legal proceedings and expert opinions related to support. So she's a very smart lady. But just before we get started, I want to take this moment and thank my last week's guest, Jess, Jeff Spies, author of Dying With Ease, now, see, if I if I was a little more organized, I would have had um, Stephanie on first so, where she can teach us how to uh, age with care, and then we could have Jeff Spies in case that didn't work. <laughs> we Then you can go into dying with ease. I'm just kidding. I made her laugh. <clears throat> anyway, uh, great interviews, both of them. You can watch or listen to uh, either one of them on our membership website, caregiverdave.com, or any of the other uh, 30 or so networks that I mentioned earlier. I know I said 25, but I found five more as I was surfing on the Internet. It just keeps growing. All right, enough of that. Stephanie, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you on. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, the honor is ours. Why don't you take a minute or two and introduce yourself? I like to ask my guests, who is Stephanie Erickson and why was she put on this earth? <laughs> hmm, that's a very big question. Yes, uh, we probably is. need a bottle of wine and about three hours <laughs> to get into the nitty-gritty of that. Uh, I think, though, if we're just talking about who I am at the core, I'm about advocating and supporting vulnerable in individuals, fighting for justice, giving people voices who don't otherwise have them, and just sending out love and light into the world. Wow, I didn't realize you were all of that. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> So you're an activist. Would that be a fair term? I don't know. I I don't know what, what advocate is a better term. I think. Right? I think advocate is better, but 
behind, I mean, a lot of people can be advocates and not necessarily have the clinical training also behind them, but they feel sure. connected to a cause and they, they fight for that cause. For me, I'm connected to the cause, but I also have the clinical training and all the work experience behind it at the same time. But I, I consider myself an advocate for older adults, for sure. And I bet if you actually saw some abuse, kind of like a mother bear being robbed of her cub, that you would switch gears and might become an activist and might get a little passionate, a little more passionate, I should say, <laughs> about oh my God. Uh, spreading your message. Yeah, Ross Seniors and uh, my husband can tell you when we take walks with our dogs, I pick up trash along the way. So my particular city yeah. is very clean. I mean, I'm always doing something to try and make the world yeah. better. <laughs> Leave the world in a better condition yeah. than you found it. Exactly. And I, I just, you know, I was just apologizing to my granddaughter yesterday about not leaving this world and this country in better condition than I got it because that's what my father and his father and his father, right? Well, I don't know how far back goes because our ancestors come from Syria, but uh, back in 1911, right? And normally we suffer, we sacrifice to to let the next generation have a better place, you know, a new and improved country. But I don't know. I think it's uh, it needs a lot of work in order for that to happen. We have a lot of challenges, but we won't get into that because we don't want to be political. But tell me about um, how long have you felt this advocacy for uh, the elderly? I mean, uh, I have a daughter who, even as a young girl, and we used to live next door to this little old lady, Lorraine was her name, and she talked like this, oh, yeah, my husband did this and that, you know, and and she was very healthy, a very healthy 90-year-old. She would go walking constantly, and she can bend down and pick anything up off the floor. And um, she she just had a lot of compassion for her and spent a lot of time over there uh, helping her and this and that. Uh, were you kind of like that? Were you a child uh, advocate for the elderly, or did this come later in life? It came later. I mean, I think I've always felt a connection to any human being and has always mm -hmm. seen anyone who's struggling or vulnerable and, and felt an affinity towards them and wanted to help, no matter who they are and what age of what they were experiencing. Mm -hmm. But earlier on in my social work career, I did a concentration, actually, in my master's for children, and I worked for the first several years helping kids that had been abused. Um, and neglected and did a lot of stuff there. And then when I was just moving cities, I was like, okay, I just need to get a job in this city. I want to near, mm -hmm. live near the beach, near my sister, Redondo Beach, which you probably oh, know because you're nice. in California. Yeah. <laughs> so let me just find a job. And then I fell into a, a job as a palliative care social worker. And then many of my clients, not all, but a large percentage of them were older adults. And then that is when I started realizing my connection with that population and dying with ease as your last guest would say and uh -huh. that kind of like that that started the wheels spinning and sort of opened up a new a new angle i guess a, a new focus in my career cool yeah. so um you talk about team caregiving explain that well no one ages in isolation no one does anything in isolation even writing my book Last night I did sign, I, I signed a bunch of books for all of the beta readers that I had and the people that mm -hmm. endorsed my book. And I mean, I just sent out today 20 books for people wow. that helped me along the way. So no one does anything alone. But I think what happens when we look at aging is we 
get very, very um, narrow in our vision. So we say, my mom is aging. My mom needs help. My mom, my dad. Mm-hmm. But it's not just the mom and the dad. There's this whole ripple effect and spinoff. It's like uh, dropping a pebble in a very smooth silent lake and you drop a pebble and the ripples go everywhere and that's what happens right. is this is the aging person but every single person is affected so team caregiving is about recognizing all of those key players all of those interested persons in this older adults well-being and having everybody communicate with honesty and transparency getting on the same page what the expectations are and executing yeah. that plan together and that has to do with doctors as well right yeah, it's the medical professionals. It's not only physicians. Um, this is what we think about those. We go to, oh, the doctor. But the doctor, and I'm not minimizing what doctors do, they're essential. But that's just a very small piece. There's social workers like myself and amazing nurses and nurses' aides or orderlies or whatever you want to call them in the different areas, occupational therapists, dietitian, recreation therapists. There's a lawyers who do the documents, the financial planners. I mean, it's, there's a lot of people involved, plus, of course, all the family members. Mm-hmm. You know, there, we get a lot of criticism uh, on my Facebook page uh, about doctors and how they're just, you know, kind of, and I don't blame them uh, because their their caseload is so big and, you know, they're under all this pressure to get the patient in and out. And, and do they sometimes fall short of being a supportive team member? And if so, um, what advice can you give to the doctors? I have come across lots of really amazing physicians. So there cool. are some that are, are fantastic mm-hmm. and who respect me as a social worker, who call me and ask my opinion, want me involved, want me to take the lead on files. So there are many like that. But there are others who are very focused on what is the problem and what is the intervention. And they're not looking at the holistic approach, the mind, right. body, soul. They're not looking at the psychosocial aspects of how that person's <laughs> illness impacts every single piece in that puzzle. Um, and I think that's part of it, I'm sure, has to do with their training, not just caseloads, but their training. Mm-hmm. What's the problem? What's the intervention? What's the medical intervention? That That's what the training is. So I think if we can go backwards as a society in all of our professions and look at aging in a more holistic way and in a team way, over time, things will get better in terms of the direct patient contact. Yeah. You mentioned the word holistic. Uh, Maybe you can define that. And also, um, I know a lot of doctors in various groups that I'm involved in who consider themselves functional medicine. And maybe you can define that, see if there's any difference or is it just another way of saying the same thing? Well, I'm not sure what those people would say about functional. I can tell you what my interpretation of that is. is Functional is about how we live in a world. So, for example, occupational therapists do a lot of functional evaluations. So it's how does somebody move from place A to place B? How do they cook? How can they um, uh, empty their groceries? It's how do they move within the world and actually function in tasks? So my idea of functional medicine is that, but I don't know if that's real. If I mean, if that's accurate in terms of holistic, for me, what that means is the mo- the body, the mind, and the soul. So I'm not downplaying medical intervention. Look, if I had you know some sort of an illness, I would certainly want to go see a doctor. And if I needed medication, I would take it. I'm not saying that it's not valuable, but there's so many other ways that we can support people. And a lot of their pain, and this is something I learned as a palliative care social worker is a lot of people's pain has to do with their emotional pain and their spiritual pain, and it becomes physical pain. So I think we're 
again, missing the mark that we could be looking at a lot of other ways to intervene and support somebody, and it might remove some of the quote-unquote illness. Do you actually know some doctors who consider themselves functional doctors? I don't know about that medicine term. doctors. I think that's the term. No? So I'm not familiar with that term, and I, I've never heard okay. of it, but I do know um, some physicians who focus. There's a physician that I know, of, for example, in Toronto, um, and he, this guy, Nick White, and he really approaches things very holistically. So, yeah, he's, a, he's an MD, yeah. um, but his approach yeah, and almost is all very... Of the, and, and almost, I'm sorry, almost all of the doctors I'm talking about that I know personally were involved in the typical uh, medical system and took themselves out of it because they did not like the way it was going. And the way they speak, it almost sounds like they have a more holistic approach to things. You know, it's not, uh, don't just treat the symptoms, you know, find out what's causing the symptoms and so on. It sounds very similar. Yeah. Okay, so how can we become an advocate with a healthcare professional with our loved ones? Because my audience are um, caregivers. And a lot of them don't like going to the doctor because they feel intimidated. Uh, you know, the, they'll wait for an appointment, then they'll get to the office, they'll wait in the waiting room, then they'll bring you in that little room, and then they'll wait again. And then finally he'll come in, and it's like their mind just went blank. They forgot all the things that they wanted to ask yeah. them, so I encourage them to write it down, you know. Yeah. And take your time. I mean, don't feel rushed. I don't care what this doctor what his attitude is or what his demeanor is or what his bedside manner is. Uh, I don't care how many uh, caseloads. By golly, you paid your dues. You waited in the waiting room. You waited for the appointment. Now you waited in the little room. Take your time. Would you agree with all of that? Don't feel intimidated. Don't feel rushed. A hundred percent. I mean, this is your life. This is not the doctor's life. This is your <laughs> life. And you approach your time with the doctor that this is your life and you are 100% invested in your well-being. I think, though, that we also need to respect that physicians or any healthcare professional, we all have very high caseloads and we are all very overwhelmed. And so for us, it's very helpful. I could speak for myself. If someone's going to see me and they have some sort of a problem, is to be clear on what their priorities are because we can't hear the, the list of 15 things and provide intervention and support for all 15. Mm -hmm. So like you're saying, write down things in advance. I think that during, let's say, the week and a half leading up to an appointment, you put a jar on your counter, and every time you think of something you might want to ask your doctor, put it on a little scrap paper and throw it in the jar. And then yeah, the night before, and a lot you of them might doctor, be related to each other. One, one might, uh, one answer might fix uh, three problems you've got, or whatever. Yeah. So then you, you know, the night before, you pull out all of your little papers, write down your list in order, your priority, and say like these four things. I'm not walking out of the office until I address these four things. I other, the other suggestion I have is that if you have that connection with physician where you can fax your questions in advance or send the list in advance or whatever it might be to give the physician an opportunity to maybe have some responses or some resources available could also maybe up your chances of number one, having that physician listen to you because he or she knows that you're respecting their time and you're trying mm -hmm. to be as condensed as possible and to optimize your time as well. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, what is the current approach of support for seniors, uh, assuming that the current approach maybe isn't the best approach? Current approach, well, I think it's it's about a body. It's about what do we need to do to get 
this body from point A to point B to get food into this body mm. and to wash this body. I don't think it has anything to do with who we are as a person. And a lot of that has to do with all the resources that are not being poured in to older adults. There's not enough funding, which means there's not enough staff, which means the staff that's there is overworked and underpaid and perhaps not well trained. Um, so they're running around just trying to get their yeah. tasks done, quote unquote. And we're forgetting that there's a human being inside that deserves time and compassion and an opportunity to be heard and be present and engage and process their life. I mean, getting old is scary and there's so much grief and loss that comes it through is. this process. You know, I'm already grieving. I'm 50. And there's things <laughs> that I'm grieving that I can't do, you know, and, and that's, we need that as, as we age to have that opportunity to express ourselves and be heard. And our system doesn't allow for that. We just kind of push people aside. So it sounds like you're saying, um, instead of just treating your patients like cattle, you know, like a cattle call, it's just another body, just another notch, you know, and let me get through this day, let me get to lunch or whatever. Um, treat them like human beings, like real people and uh, take an interest in them, you know, maybe a couple of uh, chit-chat uh, questions before you get into business and especially if you know the doctor, you know, and you have a relationship with them. We go to our doctor and every time we say, oh, how you been doing? Hey, how is that? They'll remember what I told them like a year ago or six months ago. How did that work out for you? And that's like that. Just really makes you at ease and makes you like the doctor, makes you trust the doctor. I guess that's called bedside manner. Yeah. And um, it's very, very important, isn't it? And today's doctors don't seem to have it like yesterday's doctors did, like father knows best, you know, the, the doctor who did house calls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you're talking, you know, about doctors. I'm also talking about something much larger. I'm talking about, you know, seniors, residences, long-term care mm. support, assisted care support, where it's it's not necessarily doctors that somebody's seeing every day. It's the nurse, it's the yeah. LPN, um, it's the you know, nurse's aide. Exactly, exactly. That's that's who the older adults are having contact with. And in those environments, that's that person's home. So they should really be made to feel like it's their home. They belong yeah. there. They have value and that we're interested in their life and helping them yeah. feel good about whatever remaining time a person has. I like that word, make them feel like they have value. Absolutely. Everybody wants to feel that, don't they? Alyssa, well, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too, Thrive to Stay Alive as a Caregiver. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. He now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his amazing caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Thrive and stay alive as a caregiver will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver on sale everywhere. 
and at caregiverdave.com. And we're back on the Caregiver Dave Show. I'm Dave Nassani, and my special guest today is um, Stephanie Erickson, and she has written a book. Um, why don't we talk about your book and how you wrote it, why you wrote it, what you hope to accomplish by writing it, etc.? How I wrote it was on the computer with my dog. And my feet. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, why I why I wrote it? A literalist. Think, <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I wrote it just to rant about my ongoing frustration about what I see mm. every day when I'm working in the healthcare system for older adults, um, the lack of support in the community for caregivers at home who are burned out, stressed out, and left to manage everything, um, which they can't possibly do. Their family members who are trying their best to support, but have their own work demands and economic demands and family demands. I mean, the whole system—it's—it's it's overwhelming, and we don't have the support in the community. And then when I'm walking into these long-term care residences and nursing homes and seeing what I'm seeing, I just—I couldn't take it anymore. And part of it is selfish because I don't want to be there. I don't want to be in a place like I see my clients. It's—it's it's so discouraging and disheartening and sad and some places even neglectful. And I just felt like I had an, a responsibility to share my observations and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully inspire people to demand more. And also a lot of my book talks about the, the importance of having proactive conversations with your family on all levels about financial plans and your physical plans, your body, your mind, your soul, all of that, what you want, what you expect, and to have those conversations and to get those plans in place so that when someone needs that help later down the road, families are working together. Um, and so I started it, I guess, gosh, back about five years ago, and then it was just too much with what was going on with my kids. They were younger and stuff. And and then last October, I picked it up again, and by March, I was done. I just, it was like, just all poured out of me and uh what that's do I hope called to get burnout out of it? by the way <laughs> uh, what do i hope to get out of it i hope it can get into as many hands as possible it's not about making money it's a, and actually it costs a lot of money as you probably know to write a book oh. i spent i spent a <laughs> lot and I don't, yeah will i even break even i don't know but it wasn't really ever about that it's in my nobody mind, makes money time. selling books unless you sell millions of them like hillary clinton or whatever yeah, exactly. So in my mind, it was, okay, it's not about making money. It's about every time someone purchases that book, how did I impact that life? And sure. more than just my circle of where I'd have my clinical practice, but beyond in all of North America, how can I reach more people and hopefully impact change? And that book will help you do that because all of a sudden you have validity. You have, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Credibility. Uh, credibility and validity. And so uh, all of a sudden you're important because 1% of the people write books and so that, that makes you stand out and now you're an authority and now you'll get speaking gigs or television appearances or et cetera. So yeah, um, uh, making money is never uh, a good reason to write a book because most people do not make money off of it and it's so easy to write a book these days, but still only 1% of the population writes them so you're still uh, separated from the mass uh, population. So. That's great, and uh, I, I hope and pray that your book takes you to many places that you can share your message. Um, Thank you. I was going to say uh, you spoke about uh, care facilities and 
and the condition you're uh, therein and the frustration you had. And I used to always say, I, I still do actually, but I got in trouble with one of my guests when I said it, but um, I'll say, yeah, you have to be really careful finding a facility for your loved one because, you know, my mother had dementia and my mother-in-law had dementia. It was really hard to find a place that was acceptable for them. Uh, nine out of ten of them, I don't think I'm exaggerating, maybe you can let me know if, if you found the same problem, but nine, nine out of ten of them, I wouldn't put my cat in. You know, and I say there are things you can do to find one because there's a lot of them out there and a lot of them are really, really bad. But um, I would say uh, make an appointment, don't make an appointment with them. Don't let them know you're coming so that you can come and check it out. See what it's like when they're not all prepared. Oh, someone's coming, let's, uh, you know, uh, do the smell test, you know, make sure the place smells like clean and bleachy and hospitally instead of urine like a, a kitty litter box. And then see how they treat the the elderly there. Uh, are all the wheelchairs, and this happens so many times, just rolled into the uh, hallway where the uh, people at this can just keep an eye on them. But they're just they're staring at the wall, you know, and like there's no interaction. Or on the other hand, do they have an activities director and they're inside, you know, maybe playing, um, you know, Wii, that game with the uh, with the television and golf and stuff or jigsaw puzzles or or Scrabble, or even watching television is better than staring at the wall. So that's why. So this this guest, he um, a lot of his clients were were facilities, and he wanted me to cut out that remark about the nine out of ten because he didn't want to upset them. So I did because I'm here to please. But uh, do you find that the statistics are kind of like that, one out of ten, or am I just being overly dramatic? I don't know what the statistics are, <laughs> so I wouldn't dare say. But I will. Um, say one point about one of the words you're using is facility. And I would encourage you to remove that word from your vocabulary because oh. I think that it's important when we're talking about aging that we have our language match a positive experience. And when you think about facility, what do they do in facilities? They make cars, they build <laughs> chairs. You know, a facility is like a manufacturing place. And now we're using yeah. that to associate assembly that with line. people. Yeah, and we're associating that word with people. So. I think we need to move away and be careful so what's about the language. Word? Uh, I like to say people are relocating. I don't say we place people, and that comes from a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, Marie-Claude uh -huh. Bouget. I, like uh, I like Yeah, and I like to say that people are, are, are moving into a, a residence to get care. That's it. Ah. They're moving in a residence, like our home is our residence right. as well, right? So. Well, thank um, you, you for that uh, advice taken. You <laughs> <laughs> um, said so many things that I are resonating with me, the wheelchairs lined sure. up. I don't think you've read my book, but I, I talk about that exact thing, how frustrated I am just seeing those wheelchairs lined it's up so like common. that. So common. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, But this is what I was talking to you about, Dave, is that we're not looking at the, at the other pieces of somebody. We're just looking at their body. So, okay, they're clean. So right. now we just line them up in an assembly line. This person's clean. We're lining them up. And we're forgetting that these individuals have a whole lifetime of experience be behind them. And there are so many things that we can be doing that are not expensive and that are pretty simple to integrate in to help people right. feel valued and engaged in the world around them. And when people have a neurocognitive disorder, like dementia, now it's called neurocognitive disorder, but it used to be called wow. dementia. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they've changed it in the, anyways, whatever, it doesn't matter, dementia, when people have dementia, they can't advocate for themselves in the same way too. Right. So it's really important for us as family members to do things like show up at all different times, eat a meal, 
uh, there. And because you're really yeah. going to watch for 45 minutes what's going on and how are people interacting and what do the meals smell like and taste like yeah. and showing up at all different times of day. The other piece I want to add to that that I talk about in my book is if we're planning in advance and having these conversations and we five years in advance start looking and going around to different residences with our family and saying, I like this feeling, I like this feeling, I like this feeling. If a crisis hits, family members aren't forced to make a quick decision and then somebody is moved into a place right. that is not meeting their needs, that is not a high quality residence. So part of the problem is that people wait till the last minute and then they're forced to pick places that they may otherwise not have. Yeah, and being in a facility, I'm sorry, I said it again, being in a uh, residence, residence for my mother uh, when she was still alive, uh, I would visit many, many times. Of course, she wouldn't remember. And she said, when are you going to come? You haven't been here in a month. I said, Mom, I was here yesterday. And don't let uh, – my sister would take it personally. She says, my gosh, why should I go? She doesn't even know, remember when I go. You know, it's a sacrifice for me and this and that. I says, well, they remember. They may not remember at that moment. But um, – there's also a thing that I forgot what my train of thought was, but um, it'll come back to me. I used to go when, when it was time to eat because, you know, not only do I like to eat, but I, I want to see what, what she's eating because, you oh, she didn't eat very well. And I, I'll look at her and I says, well, let me taste that, you know, and it was tasty. And so in, in my mind now, um, it's easy to say, oh, well, the food doesn't taste good. But I, I thought the food was very tasty. So you're right. Um, you should go when when you can. Uh, also, there were people there, uh, especially in the memory care part of it, that, uh, you know, they were like the lights are on but no one's home. I've never seen them have any reaction. And like I, I would try to have a conversation with them. It's like you're talking to a statue. And I kind of gave up on one or two of them until somebody brought in a bunch of uh, three-year-olds or six-year-olds or whatever it was in a, in a kindergarten and these people who were just like comatose all of a sudden came alive. Oh, come here, honey. You know, so you got to really work hard to find out how to reach some of these people because they're they're really closed off and who knows what experiences they've had. And, you know, just putting them in the uh, hallway, looking at the wall, you'll never find out what, what turns them on. Exactly, exactly. And I like that that place uh, that your mother was living was doing that with the kids. And, you know, animals are an amazing um, addition oh, yeah. to any long-term residence. And even I am now sold, I used to think they were creepy, mm -hmm. but I've seen them work so well as those robotic cats. And, and I yeah. used to think, oh, my God. But actually, for a lot of people, it works incredibly well. Yeah, and you can't we have hurt a them. Lot, <laughs> yeah, and we have a lot of senses. It's not just a visual we have auditory senses, we smell, we feel, we, you know, so there's a lot of things that people can be given, a lot of opportunities that people can have to connect and engage with something, even if it's not, yeah. you know, the tennis racket and the balloon, which not everyone is going to like, you know, but they might like listening to a particular song that brings meaning to them. Or um, I was telling my husband, uh, just a couple of days ago when he's old, if he doesn't know what he's doing, I'm going to bring in cycling, just the handlebars because he, he loves to cycle. I said, I'm going to buy you gloves and put them on your hand and just bring the handlebars so you can just like sit in your chair and hold it. And, and just you remember warned what him it about felt, that, huh? Yeah, yeah, what it felt like to be on a bike. But that's a pretty easy intervention and it's going to remind yeah. him and give him the feeling of being on a bike. You know? And music is huge. Uh, I would yeah. uh, put on my mother's favorite 40s music, headphones. And man, she was, she was in another world. 
Yeah. And then uh, the facility would occasionally bring in a little quartet of violins and cellos and and uh, really, really popular, and it would it would just make them come alive. And a piano player, have a piano there. Have someone, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the guests that visit, hey, if you know how to play the piano, play. And I was one of them, so I would play a piano, and they, they loved me. And yeah. maybe they were all deaf and couldn't hear me, but they loved me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is emotional support as we age? Allowing people to process how hard it is to get older and allowing people to explore and process their life that was behind them. Because as we, at all times in our life, we have regrets, we have remorse, we've lost connections with people. Even and Sinatra. There's, also, <laughs> there's <laughs> also really good things, obviously, emotionally. But I, I think when people age, they're starting to think, what has been, what has been the meaning behind my life? What about that relationship that I ruined? Um, I really regret how I was relating with my children. They were little or whatever it mm. might be. And people need an opportunity to express that and to make amends and to reconnect with people and make peace with whatever was behind yeah. them. It will really help them as they age. And as I saw a lot in palliative care, it takes a lot of uh, takes away a lot of the physical pain that people experience when they're given that chance to have those emotional releases. But I mean, nobody in the medical world thinks about psychological support and just offering that right. the same way you would have, here's this medication, you know? Yeah. I'm currently writing a book now where I'm talking about uh, wisdom and advice in the five, six different areas, um, mental, emotional, physical, financial, spiritual. <clears throat> What's the sixth one? Um, relational. And so, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, talk about spiritual support. To me, that is really about our connection with others, our connection with humanity, and that deep sense of purpose that we feel like when you ask me when we started is, who are you? And I mean, I could have said, oh, I, I'm a social worker. Oh, I'm a mom. And those are roles. But who am I really? Deep down, who am I? And so for me, spiritual support, it's not necessarily religious, although it absolutely can be. But it's about where are those moments when we are outside of our head, we're outside of our thoughts, we're just truly present. We really feel a connection with ourselves, a connection with the world. So for me, it's the beach. When I'm at the beach, it's just like everything goes away and I feel yeah, really present too. right there, feet in the sand. So uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is what I've been telling my children ad nauseum. They get annoyed with me, but if, <laughs> as if at some point, if I can't go to the beach, bring the beach to me, bring a bucket of sand, put my feet in it, <laughs> let me taste salt water, put, you know, sounds of the ocean, the waves crashing or kids playing. Wow. You know, You're really preparing them, aren't you? I need. I think I need to do that. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're so annoyed. And then I have they, a long-term care facility. I'm sorry, yeah, that's going to be a hard okay. habit to break. It's okay. I have You're a already aware. That's care good. Policy that uh, you know I, I've been paying for when I got it when I was 49, so it's still pretty cheap. And I tell my kids all the time, you know, are you going to change my diaper when I need it? And told them from an early age, so they're used to that. Now I tell them. Uh, you know, forget I have a long-term care policy and I want some nice place uh, at Malibu, you know, because that can afford it. She goes, Dad, we're just going to, you. if you're like that, you won't even know where you are. We're going to stick you in Bacoima somewhere and we'll just tell you you're in Malibu and you'll believe it. And you know what, Dave? If you believed it and if you were getting 
the proper emotional and spiritual support, it actually wouldn't matter. Probably. <laughs> you know? So, but yeah, like, and I am telling my kids, and that's kind of my point that I'm making in this book, is that we can have these conversations so that when and if I'm ever ill and I can't communicate, right. my children aren't left wondering because it's really my father died of a massive heart attack and mm. even though i'm a professional and talked to him for years and years dad where's your money what do you want do you want a funeral blah blah like oh closed book would not talk about a thing and then he dies suddenly and my sister and i are like what are we supposed to do and fortunately we were aligned and we worked well together and we were able to figure it out but it would have been really nice to have some information yeah, you know would have saved us a lot of stress yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I've been a caregiver to my wife now, who's been uh, disabled, uh, speech impaired, paralyzed on one side for 24 years. And she's pretty amazing. I'm very fortunate because she's very low maintenance. She can still cook. She's a wonderful gourmet cook. She can do the laundry. She can cook, uh, you know, dinner parties for many people. She, you know, I'll come home from work and she'll have the house clean, the laundry done, dinner on the table. Excuse me. <clears throat> and I'll and I'll say, well, who helped you? How did you do all this? Because you know she'll be carrying things under her chin and under her arm and and with her wheelchair. I says that looks dangerous. You shouldn't do that. You know. But it's she's kind of like uh, Trumpian like that. She's going to do what she wants to do or feel that she needs to do and somehow make a way. And uh, sometimes she'll uh, get in trouble by reaching for something and without her seatbelt on and she'll fall down. And, you know, it's not very easy to get someone up who has fallen. You know, the the proverbial, help, I've fallen and I can't get up, you know. But um, uh, a lot of people are not so fortunate. Many people are taking care of bedridden people, people who who can't even transfer, people who might have dementia or post-stroke and can't even gesture or communicate as well as my wife can, because even though she's nonverbal, she's a very good communicator through gestures and facial expressions and touch and, and pointing and this and that. And so I, with my Facebook page, I, sometimes um, I don't know what to say to the person who's telling me. It's like I'm shocked. I'm just going, oh, my God. Oh my God! Oh my God! You know, but I don't show that side of my face because it's no good if someone <laughs> is telling, pouring their heart out, and you're like shocked. He says, "Oh my God! I must really be bad because you're, you're even you're shocked." But do you come across that where where you need to just um, not react to the seriousness or the enormity of of what you're hearing, and just kind of keep on that poker face? I don't, and that's something that they told us we should do in school, actually. <laughs> and I don't do it. I did it when I was younger. Uh, What's the reaction I, by not doing it? I think it's better. People feel really? that they're connected to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't expect ever, I never have a reaction where then my client needs to take care of me. I think that's the difference. Okay. My reaction is a human reaction. So if someone's telling me a you story. You don't break into tears, for example. Sometimes I do. I mean, I'm not like sobbing uncontrollably, but I, I am a crier. I cry daily for whatever reason. <laughs> it could be good or bad. I'm always, you know, I cry a lot. If someone's me telling too. me a sad story, I'm going to cry. And it's and I'm not asking them to take care of me. I'm showing them I hear you. It is painful. It is really hard. And I think 
we need to feel validated. We need to feel heard. We need to feel yeah. that our story is real and that we're not going crazy because we're struggling with this, whatever that particular issue is. And I think people feel connected when they know that someone else understands their experience, even if they don't experience it like in the same way. Um, so no, I don't really keep that poker face. I, I find that I'm really present with my clients and feel what they feel. I, I don't know that it's always healthy for me because then it's harder for me to let go when I get home and let yeah. that go and then just be with my family because I'm carrying that on. And honestly, yeah, a lot I'm of just caregivers learning. get depressed, even paid caregivers, when their loved one passes on because they were so connected to them. It's like their grandmother passed, you know? Yeah. Listen, we're going to take another break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. We are a community of caregivers that understands and supports you wherever you are in your journey. We are a place to connect with other caregivers, but more importantly, a place to get practical, actionable help. There are lots of ways for you to get support. First of all, you can download our welcome pack. This will get you started on your Thrive journey. Next, you can ask and get answers to your questions by posting them here in our private Facebook groups. You can also get live online support by attending one of our live weekly Connect webinars. You can get practical, actionable advice by listening to our weekly podcast. You can hear and read other stories about other caregivers' experiences. Plus, add your own in our weekly Share Your Story forum, posted every Tuesday in the Facebook group. You can access essential resources and download practical Thrive Solutions Packs, all of which are geared to help you thrive as a caregiver. You can get lifetime access to all of our resources. Again, we're here to support you and help you thrive and to enjoy your life as a caregiver. And remember, this is a place to get hope, not just cope. And we're back on the Caregiver Dave Show. I'm Dave Nassani, and our guest, Stephanie Erickson, author. And what other titles do you have? <laughs> Okay, so roles author, right? <laughs> yeah, author, social worker, family caregiving expert, but then in my personal life, friend, mom, wife, trapeze artist. I do the flying trapeze, so you know. Really? Yeah. Do really. you use a net? Yes, I'm not insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, just wondering. <laughs> uh, how old are the kids? My daughter is 15. My son is 12. Well, that's a whole different uh, discussion, isn't it? Teenagers. Yes, it is. A lot of door slamming and uh, I don't understand yeah. and I'm so annoying and, you know. I raised three daughters and I'm, I, I, I don't know if it's easier than boys, but I, I think they, they would be. <laughs> boys yeah. would be easier until boys get older uh, or boys are easier after they're out of the house and girls, it's vice versa. But that's just my opinion. So let's talk about family conflict since we're talking about teenagers. Um, <laughs> what do you say about that? Boy, is there a lot. Um, and, you know, this is so important why we need to plan, why we need to have transparent discussions because when a crisis hits, which unfortunately inevitably happens a lot as people age, there's some medical health 
crisis, a fall or medication mishap or, you know, a stroke or, you know, so many things can happen as we're getting older. And when the seniors, the older adults don't know what they want, haven't put their plans in place and communicated those plans, family conflict erupts. And what I see happens often is that a senior will tell one child, here's my power of attorney, this is what I want. Don't tell your brother because you know he can't handle this or he's done this or that. And then all of a sudden the senior can't make decisions for him or herself. And then the sister says, or the daughter says, okay, this is what we need to do. And the son's like, you did it behind my back and you're trying to steal money. And transparency is really important. And it might be hard to share the information up front, but I'm telling you, it always makes it better. Maybe it doesn't feel good when you're executing whatever plans that are that, that there are, but knowing in advance is essential to avoid that conflict down the road. And a lot of uh, elderly people who are doing this kind of thing that you just discussed, their logic, their rationality is... Well, I'm not going to be around anyway. They can fight if they want, but that's a terrible way to leave things, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm not sure if that's always the rationale. I think sometimes it's just like, well, I don't want to upset your son or, or my son or he's having such a hard time or his life's been so hard or whatever it might be. And so it's like that parent wanting to protect a child. So, so how does a parent tell a child that maybe they don't trust as much as another child without hurting their feelings. Uh, let's do a little role play here because mm. I know that's pretty common. You might hurt their feelings. That's the thing is you may, and you need to be okay with that because hurting someone's feelings in the front end by being honest will help to minimize the effects later should the, that those family members need to get together to advocate on someone's behalf. So I think for the older adult, for them realizing that if what they want is for their children to get along and to not be fighting and to not have a wedge be put between them and for them to get all of the care and support that they want, it's in their best interest to give that information up front, even if it's hard, even if someone's feelings are hurt, but at least it's out there. I, I think well, it's better. That's a very optimistic attitude. There's no guarantees, right, <laughs> that that will all work out. So some people just might not be willing to take that tiny little risk. I mean, we won't even go outside without a mask of some people because they're afraid, uh, you know, COVID-19 is going to go get them. But, you know, they could get hit by a truck before the COVID-19 ever hits them. So it's hard to not uh, or to live in a risk-free environment. We're always taking risks about something each day. So just add it to your risk list. <laughs> um, so what's the best way that you or a caregiver, since we're talking about conflict, can unwind or de-stress or uh, just disengage from that conflict so that, right, we keep telling them they need self-care, they need to put their needs first, they need to put their oxygen mask on first or they're going to burn out. So what are some methods of getting away from that stress since we really can't get away from it, but we can disengage from it, can we? Yeah, so you're kind of asking two things because there's the general what can caregivers do for self-care, and then there's also in relationship to family conflict, how do you remove yourself from that? Let's just take that piece first. Right. So like everybody in life, there are relationships that are challenging for us. There are situations that are challenging, and we all are working all the time on controlling what we can and then letting go of what we can't and 
putting the onus on the other person. The other person is responsible for their reaction. The other person is responsible if they get angry or frustrated or sad or whatever it is for that relationship. And we as human caregivers or not are always working on that. So if, you know, I need to sit share something with my sister and she gets angry at me for what I said, I'm not responsible for her anger. That reaction is hers. It belongs to her. What I'm responsible for is being as honest as I can, as kind as I can, as compassionate as I can, as I'm sharing whatever it is to her. I, don't, I shouldn't be mean, but then she needs to just own that herself. And so that's part of the way I think caregivers or anybody can begin to remove themselves from conflict is really just understand that everybody is going to do what they're going to do, and we're not responsible for that. And I'm sure all of the people who know you know that you're that way and expect you to be that way and probably in their mind would know that if you were going to say something, you might hurt their feelings, but that you're doing it in love and you're doing it in honesty and so on, which in and of, of itself makes it easier than as opposed to someone who would never say anything like that, totally against their, their character or their personality, and all of a sudden it comes out of their mouth, that's probably more shocking. So I hear you saying just kind of live your life like that. Yeah, and I think if it's not in your character, you're making a very good point. I mean, people know me, and this is how I am. I always am sharing my feelings. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I, as I mentioned, I cry all the time. Like, I, I'm, really, I'm really me all the time. Take, you know, love me, not love me, whatever it is, but I am me. Love me and or I, leave me. <laughs> yeah. um, but I always try and leave, you know, with kindness and love and such. But that's who I am. But for people who aren't that way, it is a tall order to say, oh, well, just, you know, have the other person be responsible for their feelings. So I think it's like with anything, it's baby steps. It's trying things out in a very comfortable way that we, if we want to evolve ourselves as a human in any way, caregiver or not, it's not about the sprint. I want to be like that tomorrow. It's, yeah. I love that position. I love that feeling. This is where I want to be. So how can I every day work towards this in terms, it's a marathon. It might take yeah. me 10 years to build that skill, but every day I'm going to work towards getting there. And when I fall back and, and make a mistake, I will forgive myself and I'll try again. I have an acronym I use um, for caregivers. It's CARE, C-A-R-E. Communicate with your friends. Don't isolate yourself. Uh, ask for help. Uh, rest. Caregivers need eight hours rest every night. Average one if we gets two or three. And eat. Eat healthy, nutritious food. Don't eat junk food. And so I want to talk about help. Caregivers are notorious for turning down help that is offered and not asking for help. Oh, I can do it. I can do it. Maybe they think they can do it, but they really can't do it, especially when their loved one moves into the requiring 24-7 care, um, yet they, they're going to, by golly, they're going to do it because they promised um, their loved one that they would never put them in a facility. <laughs> and they're, they're, they're just freaked out about that, and that guilt keeps them from, it's like a death sentence. Well, I, I always tell them, change your promise. Say, um, I'm changing that promise to I will give you the best care possible because I, it may not be possible for me to give you, to keep you out of a, uh, a residence if you really, really need one. I would be doing you a disservice. I would be damaging myself and damaging yourself because I can't wake up every two hours and check you for bed sores and so on. So how can caregivers ask for help better or even ask for help when they're not doing it? Well, you're, 
I think a lot of us, I, I'm mm. like this, I think, well, if I better, I better just do it myself because then it's going to get done the right way, right? So we kind of all yeah, have a, If a you problem. want a job done right, do it yourself. Do it yourself. <laughs> so delegation is something that is hard for caregivers, and I understand because they're in the thick of it, and they understand the person. They understand all the nonverbal cues, all the points, all the gestures. You know your wife better than anyone. So for you to walk away and assume someone else is going to understand her in the same way, it's it's impossible to think somebody could. So I would understand if you're like, well, I'm never going to leave because no one else can do it. So I think we need to begin as caregivers to wrap our head around that maybe that piece is good for the caregiver, but maybe there are other ways we can get help. So I suggest that caregivers start listing literally every single task that they do within a 24-hour period for a seven-day period see all the tasks and then look at them and say, okay, this one is a priority and only I can do this. This one is a, maybe I'm on the fence, I can ask some help. And then this one, like, you know what? I probably could release my responsibility to that and pass that on because the risk is low. You know, it can't, no one can really fail at that and kind of give <laughs> myself a chance. So starting with like really low, low risk things like I'm going to ask my neighbor to get the mail for me. I'm going to ask my neighbor to take out the trash cans and bring them in. I'm going to ask my neighbor now to go to the pharmacy and pick up my medication. So like slowly giving somebody more responsibility over time. And I think hopefully the caregiver will realize, well, you know what, there are some other people who could, who could step yeah. in and provide some help. Great advice. Um, with, with three more minutes to go of uh, time sure flies when you're having fun. What mistakes do most families make? Not planning in advance, and if they do plan in advance, not talking about it. Secrecy. Behind the back Secrecy. moves, yep. or, the, or the feeling that if it's in writing, everyone's going to automatically understand what that means. But I'm sorry, a DNR for someone like me who's 50 who gets in a car accident is not the same for a DNR of someone who's 95 and just had a massive stroke. Those are two different kinds of DNRs, and those differences are not in our documents. So it's the conversation, it's the non-secrecy, it's the transparency, and again, it's a marathon. We're having conversations all the time. You don't have to make like every decision today. It can just be a yeah. slow, ongoing dialogue. I'm going to do this. So many people keep secrets. Oh, yes. Well, it's my book before we're out of our three minutes. <laughs> Plan for aging well. Yeah. Yes. Amazon. And how can someone get one of those? Amazon. <laughs> Amazon. 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 You talk about secrets a lot. Um, there are no secrets in your life. You keep no secrets from your kids, from your husband, from your loved ones, from your whatever. It's just very Somebody, interesting question. I would has. say, I would say my husband knows everything, okay. um, and I have several friends who know everything. Uh, and, and if they don't know something, it's not because I'm intentionally keeping it. It's just for whatever reason, I haven't shared it. My children, probably not every single thing because they're not at the age where they would maybe understand that. But eventually, I don't have any As doubts adults, that I will. you would probably. I, I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. It's a good way. Good way to run your life. That way you don't have to remember the lies. <laughs> exactly. Who did I tell? The, Where's my list? Or the untruths, right? Because that's what people call lies these days. Lies yeah. just sounds terrible. It's an untruth. Yeah. <laughs> well, what a great show. I appreciate you coming on. Thank uh, you. Is there, uh, in, in the next 60 seconds, is there something that you wish you would have said that we didn't cover yet? 
No, I just appreciate your time. I appreciate what you're doing for your wife and also for other caregivers out there. And I hope I added some value. And if you want to learn more, go to Amazon, buy my book. That's it. And what if somebody wants to email you or go to your website? Do you have a website? Yeah, it's... Yeah, I do. StephanieErickson.ca and Stephanie's with a P-H, Erickson with the C-K, and you can actually book on there for a consultation with me. There's a calendar feature if you want a, a video or a phone consultation. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was a great show. You did an awesome job. This isn't your first interview, right? Like no, I've been, on TV. I've, not, I've been on TV probably like 50 times. <laughs> awesome. I used, to, I used to be a regular on a morning show here, but they canceled it. But anyways, oh. yeah. Do you book yourself or you have someone yeah. book you? Or? No, no, I don't have a publicist. I've done it all myself. I finally just hired just an like assistant me. who's helping me keep track of stuff. But no, it's me. And who taught you how to book yourself? Just figured I it just out? I just asked. I just asked. I asked. See? If you want to know, ask. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> Thank you again, Stephanie. Thanks, Dave. And we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing.